0: Mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our sermon text for this evening comes from the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10. And if you are willing and able at this time, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's most holy word. The word of God reads After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you come do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of his word and all the church says. You may be seated. As we make our way through the gospel of Luke, I want to make sure week after week that we understand that Jesus's ministry and mission were shaped by the law of Jubilee and that he brings Jubilee to bear on all kinds of people with his words and with his deeds. So when Jesus goes about, he not only proclaims the gospel of Jubilee, he embodies it with his life. Jesus practices What he preached. Now, when I refer to Jubilee, remember I'm simply referring to things like liberty and refreshment and rescue and release and rest. Those are the things promised by God in the law of Jubilee. And Jesus brings that to the world in his mission and ministry. Today, when he encounters a centurion, there is no difference. He encounters a centurion, and the centurion is a Roman soldier. Now, to us, none of this seems very shocking. We know enough about the story. We know enough about the situation with Jesus and the Romans and the Jews to know that we know how it's going to play out. We just read the story. But if you could put yourselves in the sandals of the original readers of the story or the original hearers of this story, and you came along to this part of Luke's gospel and you saw that there was a centurion in the story, alarms would go off. You would be aware that something significant is about to happen. There might be a conflict. There was some danger. Something strange is about to go on here. And so you would be paying close attention Because you would know that the centurion does not belong in this story. He does not belong in this land of Israel. He does not belong in our community. And you would be fully aware of the tension that Luke is generating in this story. What's the big deal about having a centurion right here in the story of Jesus and his mission and ministry to the world? Well, the big deal is that he is a Roman soldier. That he is in charge of 100 other Roman soldiers. And these soldiers are all serving as a militarized police force in the land of Israel among the Jews. They have occupied the Jewish land and they have occupied the towns and villages of the land because they are there to enforce Roman law. They want to make sure that the Jewish people don't get out of control or do anything unruly or try to spark a revolution. And so they're there to maintain peace and order. Right. And the Jewish people see all of this day after day and they feel the burden of it. And they've grown tired of it. So from a Jewish point of view, just knowing that there is a centurion, over a hundred other soldiers in your town serving as the militarized police force would be enough to drive you crazy. You can imagine what it would be like uh, if you could put yourselves in the shoes of some of our Hispanic brothers and sisters. Imagine this, that the United States of America sent military down to Latin America Down to Mexico, say. And suddenly the United States military began serving as the police force of the towns and villages down there. You can imagine the frustration and the anger that that would generate. Well, that's what's happening in this place and in this time. There's a lot of tension between Romans and Jews and a lot of uh, anxiety about the situation. These two groups of people, generally speaking, despise each other and hate each other. And yet we meet this centurion and Luke makes it clear right away that there's something different about this centurion versus all of the other centurions you might meet in those days. Here's a brief sketch. Here's a resume that we might put together as we look at this man's life. What kind of man was this centurion? Well, we've seen that he is a man who is over others. And so he is a responsible man. He's under authority himself, but he has great authority as well. He's a responsible man, and he's there to do what his commanders command him to do. He works for the Roman government, and he is enforcing Roman law to maintain peace and order. We also learn that he is the master of a household. This is a man who has a family. He owns property. He has a house that he lives in. He's a man of wealth and means. He makes a good living, and we know that because he has servants He's a man of influence. We know that because he can gather leaders, Jewish leaders, and send them on a mission. And so he has influence in the community, not only among Romans, but also among Jews. And so as we look at all of this, we might say, well, this is a pretty good resume. It's a pretty good resume. This guy seems to be okay." Oh, by the way, he helped build a church building over there, a Jewish church building. Why? Because he loves Jewish people. So this softens things up for us a little bit, as Luke intends for us to to hear. But there might be a problem because from the beginning of Luke's gospel up until this point, Luke has been telling us about the dangers of wealth, the dangers of power, the dangers of pride, the dangers of glory. He's been warning us about this from chapter one. So if you were to go back and I'll just give you a few examples of this all the way back to Luke chapter one, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang in her Magnificat about God, she said, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sang in his song about the prospect of the coming Christ, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. It's clear that Zechariah had spiritual enemies in mind, not political enemies, but the language is similar. And so a lot of people would grab onto Zechariah's language and think, yes, when the Christ comes, he is going to get rid of the Romans Get rid of those people who hate us. In Luke chapter 4, we heard a few weeks ago, Jesus preach, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then in Luke 6, Jesus continued with this theme and even preached these very strong words. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now, what does that have to do with the centurion? Well, the centurion is a man who is wealthy and powerful and all people speak well of him. And if you've been reading Luke carefully enough and then you bump into someone like the centurion, your thought might be, This guy is in real trouble. When Jesus shows up at his house, he is going to smoke him down. He is going to turn him in the dust. I mean, this guy has no chance. He doesn't know what he's asking for by asking Jesus to come to his house. And yet Luke makes it clear to us that there is something different about this centurion. The centurion is a man with a tender, compassionate heart. We know that because he loves and esteems his servant. And we also know that he is a deeply religious man. We know that because when he heard news about Jesus, he sent for him. He was filled with faith and hope that perhaps Jesus could do something for him that no one else could do. And the way he heard about Jesus is because Jesus was using Capernaum as his base of operation. And from Capernaum, he would go out and preach and heal and then come back and rest and then go out again And every time he went out, people would hear the news or see what Jesus was doing, and they would report that all over the place. And great crowds were telling the story about Jesus everywhere they went. So when the centurion heard the good news about all of the things Jesus was doing, he sent people to ask Jesus to come to his house. Now, we might wonder why in the world this guy took such an interest in his servant, it seems strange to us, right? If you're a Roman centurion and you have all of the power and the clout that this man had, why not let the servant just pass on and then go get another one at the marketplace? Well, this Roman Centurion esteemed the servant highly, and this was not uncommon among Roman people. Some servants were treated quite well in their households. Some of them were treated almost as if they were sons or daughters, and so they were loved deeply by their masters and treated, to give you an analogy, treated perhaps the way step, stepchildren are when they are loved by a stepparent. They are loved deeply. Well, the centurion loves the servant and he highly esteems him. And he's grieving over the fact that this servant that he loves and esteems is suffering in his own life. And that he is fact, in fact suffering with a terminal illness. Luke says that he is at the point of death. And so he is reaching the end of his tether and does not have long for this world. Now, it goes without saying that some of you, some of us have... Faced similar situations with people we love and care about. If you've ever sat next to the sick bed or next to a sick bed that became a deathbed of someone you love, then you know how the centurion felt. If you've ever watched someone you love suffer and agonize in their suffering, and know that there's no more hope that medicine and physicians can no longer do for this loved one of yours. And the only way the suffering will be alleviated is when death comes to take this person. Then you understand some of what this centurion is going through. So these stories are real, right? They're about real life. And we see in this centurion a man who is doing what we would all do. Perhaps there's an, a bit of desperation in his invitation of Jesus to come. Perhaps it is just pure faith and expectation that only Jesus can do for him what no one else could. Well, whatever the case, we see that this man acts by faith and invites Jesus to come. He sends the elders of the Jews to do his work for him. So he's using mediators, and he explains why later. He doesn't feel worthy in himself to even go and speak to Jesus. It's not that he's a lazy man or so busy that he can't go do it himself. But maybe he thinks that if the leaders of the Jews go, if the elders of the Jews go, they can put a good word in for him. And maybe Jesus would be more receptive. And so he sends them. When they show up, they do something interesting. He, the, Luke doesn't tell us if the centurion had a message For Jesus to give through the elders. But when the elders show up, they certainly have a message and their message is very similar to the kinds of messages that we would give if we had been sent on that mission on that mission. We would want to make sure we said and did everything possible to convince Jesus to come because we love this centurion. We love this man and and we want what's best for him and we we've got to persuade Jesus to come. What they say to Jesus here is very similar to the way some of us pray, isn't it? We think that a simple prayer won't do. And so we want to flower it up, right? We want to uh, we want to make our prayer pretty and formal. And we add all kinds of language to it. That's probably not necessary. That's essentially what they're doing. They are offering a prayer to Jesus on behalf of their friend. And they say things like he is worthy to have you do this for him and they make a case for it. He loves our nation. He loves our race is what the Greek says. He loves our race. He loves Jewish people. And he is the one who built our synagogue. So he is worthy to have you come. Some translations sneak in. He is uh, he deserves to have you do this. And maybe that was behind the thought, but not necessarily so. The point is they're trying to convince Jesus to come. And Jesus doesn't worry about whether what they said was over the top or correct theologically or any of those things. He just answered. I was thinking about this and talked about it with a couple of brothers yesterday. And what's interesting to me is those of us who are reformed Christians. We are very sensitive about language, very sensitive about words. And we hear this kind of thing. And I'll be honest with you, when I first read this, my thought was, no, 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 no. This man is not worthy for no one is worthy but God alone. Right. And you expect Jesus to give them a little theological lecture and correct them on this. But he doesn't do it. The scriptures say that Jesus simply went with them. Now, if that surprises you the way it surprised me, let me say it shouldn't surprise you at all. Because what Jesus is doing here is simply what a wise king of the Jews said God would do many centuries before. In first Kings chapter eight, when King Solomon was dedicating the temple to God, he got on his knees and raised his arms and he prayed to God to dedicate the temple as a part of that prayer. This is what he said. Listen to these words and see how they tie into the story that we're looking at this evening. Solomon prayed when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel comes from a far country for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to do in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. So what in the world is happening in Luke seven? What's happening in Luke seven is what Solomon prayed would happen. Only it's much better. Because God has come from earth, from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better king. He also happens to be the true and better temple. And it's a movable temple. It's a temple that moves towards people. So the centurion is not praying towards the temple, but he is praying towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus hears his prayer and moves towards him. God in the flesh heard his prayer and answered it. Jesus has made it clear throughout his mission and ministry so far that he has come into the world to save sinners. And not just Jewish sinners, but also Gentile sinners. And he practices what he preached So if you went back a chapter in Luke 6, you would see Jesus preaching a message like this to his followers. And again, remember what I said to you about the tension between Jews and Romans. And now hear what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, when you hear Jesus preach that in the context of there are centurions and Romans all around us and there's tension, racial conflict, difficulty between cultures. And perhaps you can hear just how radical that message was in Jesus' day. And let me assure you that this is the same message and it's just as radical in our days if we have ears to hear. Think of who your enemies are. Think of those who hate you. Think of those who curse you. Think of those who abuse you and take what doesn't belong to them from you. And Jesus says, this is how you must act. When he meets the centurion... He has a chance to practice what he preached. And unlike your pastors who struggle to practice what we preach, here Jesus has no struggle at all. Let me show you how to love your neighbor. Let me show you how to do good to those who hate you. Let me show you how to bless those who curse you. Let me show you how to give to the one who begs of you. And that's exactly what he does. So he makes his way towards the house. And on on the way to the house... Something happens in the centurion's heart and mind. He has a kind of change of heart. Remember, he sent leaders of the elders to talk to Jesus. But somewhere along the way, he said, well, maybe that was a bad idea. And he he regrets doing it. And so now he gets some friends and he sends them out to Jesus and says, hey, never mind. Don't trouble yourself. Don't bother yourself with coming here. And I think what's happening is this, is the centurion is a faithful man and he's a humble man and he realizes that he might have sent the wrong message to Jesus, that he might have sent the wrong vibe, that maybe just force of habit, he just sends a command, go tell Jesus to get over here and heal my servant. He's accustomed to ordering people around and having people do his bidding and do his will, but he feels bad about it now. Because he's been treating Jesus, at least maybe in his imagination, it could come across that he's treating Jesus as just another servant or as just another soldier. And that somehow he's exercising authority over Jesus. And he regrets that. And he wants to pull it back and call a mulligan and say, no, that's not what I meant to do. And notice in the story, he refers to Jesus as Lord. Not just Mr., not just Sir, but Lord. And to refer to Jesus as Lord is a way for the centurion to say, I'm under you. I'm your servant. What in the world was I thinking asking you to come all this way? It's unnecessary. The centurion reasons by way of analogy that perhaps, perhaps, authority and responsibility work in the spiritual realm, in the cosmic realm, the way authority and, and spiritual, uh, authority and responsibility work in the military realm. And that's why he gives that example. I'm a man under authority and I have authority and I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. And, and I realize in thinking through that, that that's all you had to do. You are the Lord. You have authority over me, over my servant, over death, over sickness, over all things. It was not necessary for you to travel all the way across town to come over here and do something that you could have done on the other side of town just by speaking the word. This is a profound confession of faith on the part of the centurion, because now he is acknowledging that the word of the Lord Jesus Christ has real power to form and reform and transform the world. He's acknowledging that he believes that the invisible influences the visible, that the spiritual affects the natural, the physical, the material. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And this message stopped Jesus dead in his tracks. Why? If it had been us making the trek across town through the dusty streets of Capernaum and we got the message, we might have thought, you're kidding me. He sent for me. I'm on my way. And now he tells me I don't have to go and we would be so put out. Well, maybe you wouldn't, but I would definitely be put out. But that's not what stopped Jesus in his tracks. He was not put out or upset with the man at all. The scriptures say that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And let me be clear, he marveled at him does not mean that Jesus did the face palm, shake his head, I can't believe this just happened. No, marveled at him means that he thought of the man and and said, oh, wow, that's amazing. And he's so amazed and he's so impressed by what just happens, he has to turn around and tell others about it. Tell them why he stopped dead in his tracks and why he was so impressed. In Greek, one of the meanings of this word for marvel or astonished means admired. That he admired him. Jesus admired the centurion for his faith. Let me ask you a question. Now we get personal. Shift gears a bit. How often in your life have you thought, man, I really need to get Jesus's attention. I need him to notice me. I need him to be aware of what I'm doing. I I want to impress Jesus in some way. I want to do something that matters. And I want Jesus to let me know it matters. I, I really want to show him how faithful I am. I really want to impress him with my sacrifices, with my service, with my you fill in the blank. I can tell you that pastors wrestle with this perhaps more than anyone else. We just so badly want to impress Jesus. We want Jesus to notice us. Look at me. Look at my ministry. Look at our church. Look what we're doing. And some of you wrestle with that as well. If you really want to impress Jesus, if you really want to get his attention, if you want his admiration... Here's what you don't do. You don't have to speak in the tongues of angels and men. And you don't have to have prophetic powers. And you don't have to know all the mysteries of theology. And you don't have to do great things like move mountains from one place and put them in the sea. You don't have to give away all of your possessions and become poor. And you don't have to deliver up your body to be burned in the flames, in sacrifice to the Lord to prove how much you love him or how much he means to you. You don't have to do anything extreme or dramatic in that way to get his attention, to impress him. There's only one thing you have to do and you just saw it in the story, isn't it? The only thing you have to do to impress Jesus is to trust him, no matter what. There's nothing in the Gospels that impresses Jesus the way faith in Him impresses Him. There are only two places in all of the Gospel stories that Jesus expresses any kind of expression like this. And both of them have to do with Gentiles who have turned to Him and trust Him deeply from the heart. What do we mean when we say faith? That all you have to do is walk by faith and not by sight. What is faith? Well, faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And since I quoted scripture there, none of us can argue with that. We all know now that's what faith is. But we don't really feel it, do we? Faith is not simply something we have intellectually in our minds. It's not something that we just hold in our hearts. It's something that has to come out of our mouths and our fingertips in our feet. And that's what you see in the centurion. He walked by faith. And what was his reward for walking by faith? What was his reward for seeking the Lord and trusting him in this way? Well, I could tell you what the story said. I could simply say, well, Jesus heard his prayer and healed his servant and we could all walk away and say, "Cool." But what's the story behind the story? What's significant about Jesus answering the prayer and healing the servant? The significance is that Jesus brought Jubilee to bear on this man's life. He relieved him of his anxieties and fears. He restored him. He refreshed his spirit and his body. He gave him rest and relief. That was his reward for trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What will your reward be for seeking and trusting the Lord? As you consider the various needs and concerns that weigh on you, as you consider the troubles facing you in your life, as as you consider all of those things and you seek the Lord and strive to trust Him, what will be your reward for seeking Him? For the Scriptures say, whoever would draw near to God must believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. What will the Lord grant you for trusting him and seeking him? Well, I can't tell you any specifics because I don't know all of your needs, but I can tell you this. These are some things that you must do by faith if you want to know what your reward will be for seeking and trusting the Lord. You must ask and you'll receive. You must seek and you will find. You must knock and the door will be opened. You must pray and see the Lord's decision. Wait and you will see the Lord's salvation. Hope and you will see the Lord's provision for you. If you walk by faith, you will receive not only the things you ask for, but more than those things. You will receive the Lord Himself. You will receive the Lord Himself as your shield and your very great reward. And that's far better than any of the small things we ask for. This is the big thing behind the small things that we truly need. But until the Lord answers your prayers, the Scriptures counsel us to lower ourselves under God's mighty hand and know it that at the proper time He will lift us up. We're encouraged to cast all of our DFW on the Lord, our doubts, our fears, our worries. We cast it all on the Lord because he cares for us. So what does it mean to walk by faith? What does it look like for you today leaving this place and going in to the night? It means that in the grip of anxiety and fear, you call on the Lord. It means that in the darkness of guilt and shame, you trust the Lord. That in the face of sickness and death, you cry out to the Lord. That in the pit of despair and hopelessness, you trust the Lord. That in the prison of sin and temptation, you call on His name. That in the chaos of your unstable present and uncertain future, you cry out to Him. I know as well as you that sometimes... Especially when life is very hard and you feel that you're at the end of your rope. When loneliness takes over, when brokenness invades your experience, when there seems to be no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. In those moments, it seems that the Lord is so far away. And no matter how many elders you send to find him, no matter how many friends you send to speak to him on your behalf, it seems that he's too far away, too far out of reach to even make it to you. And yet the Scriptures tell us, God's Spirit says to us, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Let it fly, whatever it is. And don't hold back. And don't think that anything is too small for the Lord to hear, too insignificant for Him to take care of. Give it all to the Lord. And what is the promise attached to this? And the peace of God which passes all understanding will stand guard like a troop of centurions around your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Jubilee for your life. That in the midst of your sorrows and fears and doubts and worries, In the midst of your suffering and anguish, even at the point of death, the Lord is near you. And He will guard and protect you. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make straight paths for your feet. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from all evil. And it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones.